When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. You might have heard tell that science has been all over the news since the beginning of the pandemic. COVID-19 brought about things like believe all scientists and believe all science, and we have to listen to the experts and all these things. And that landed differently with different people. Of course, we need to hear from experts, but those experts are also just people like all the rest of us. They have bad days. They have good days. They get things right. They get things wrong. Well, we're going to turn down the noise today on Believe All Science and talk to one of our favorite scientists, our buddy Michael Siegel. Now, Michael's been doing just yeoman's work writing about all kinds of scientific things. He writes a weekly science column for Ordinary Times at Ordinary-Times.com. He's also married to somebody who's been doing a lot of RDNA research. So he's really been somebody we've leaned on during the pandemic to explain some of the scientific side of the COVID stuff. Because one thing we have found out is that the scientific community and the general public at large does not always speak the exact same language. So one of the things we want to talk about is believe all science is a fine thing to say, but if you can't communicate, what does that even mean? So we're going to talk about the way science communicates with the general public. When should we believe it? And what does science mean anyway? What is the point of science? These are all questions we're going to ask our buddy Michael Siegel, and he's going to answer them because he has a great way of taking all these great big terms and these big words and things about science that can be rather intimidating, frankly, and explaining them in a plain way. He's just a genius like that, and we all get a benefit from it. So on this episode of Heard Tell, Believing All Science from an Actual Scientist with Michael Siegel, right after this. And I'm going to really enjoy this one because it's somebody I like talking to and I get to talk to online frequently because we work together with Ordinary Times. But um, Michael Siegel, how are you, sir? Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I'm good. How are you doing down there? I'm fantastic. It's been uh, nothing but unmitigated chaos, but it keeps the voices quiet. So it's good to stay busy, my friend. (laughs) Just real quick for folks, since we have to believe all scientists now, let's hear the credentials. You are a bona fide, real life, certifiable scientist, right? Yep. Um, I I got my PhD from the University of Virginia um, and uh, have done research at a the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore at uh, UT Austin. And uh, right now I'm up here in Pennsylvania 
been here about 10 years. I uh, work for the uh, Neil Garrel Swift Gamma Ray Burst Mission, uh, which is a NASA space telescope. And uh, yeah, it's what I do full time, occasionally teach as well. Now, I won't hold it against you that you went to least Virginia. Um, <laughs> but now I'm kidding. Virginia's a fine school. I uh, we we uh I was actually at University of Virginia works with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and they have right. a facility out in Green Bank, Virginia. So I have Excuse actually me. been out there. Excuse me. West Virginia. Green Bank, West Virginia. Thank you very much. We um, we don't we don't get a lot but that that's one of those worldwide things that people know us about is the Green Bank Observatory. Let's just start there. I I got to that was that's a mandatory field trip for West Virginia school children for a lot of it and it's really something to go into now with the we didn't realize it when I was a kid but now with cell phones and stuff that there's this whole area of the country around this telescope they call it the dead zone. There's no radio frequencies, no just tell people what that's like because I don't think they realize just out in the middle of the country we have a worldwide, world renowned radio telescope and, and what that is. So I actually got my start in radio astronomy as an undergraduate. Um, I was working on data from the VLA in New Mexico. You may have seen that in the movie Contact. And did some more search at Arecibo, wow. which uh, recently collapsed last year. The one in Puerto Rico. So That's that the Golden the Eye I... one for people that don't remember. The the, yep. end, the Golden Eye, the big in the ground at Arecibo that just collapsed in the news. Yeah. And, and despite being in charge of it, it did not pull a Golden Eye and explode on, on us. But uh, when I was all of 20 when I was working with that telescope. Oh, wow. But uh, I went to UVA uh, because I wanted to do radio astronomy. I didn't end up doing it. But out in West Virginia, they have one of the best radio observatories in the world. And what makes it one of the best radio observatories in the world is not only that it has great telescopes, but it's in a radio quiet area. Um, radio astronomy picks up signals that are extremely faint. And any radio noise will interfere, will be way brighter than any cosmic source. For example, they worry about transmission in civilian passbands because the spillover many much frequency away into an astronomy passband can be stronger than the astronomy signals. To give you an example of the kind of signals that they can sometimes pick up, one time they started picking up a regular radio signal at a certain time of night. And uh, they tried to track it, figure out if it was cosmic, it wasn't, it was terrestrial, and they eventually tracked it down to someone's microwave wow. in a nearby building that was giving off, microwaves are basically low frequency, uh, very high frequency radio waves. And so they tracked it down to the microwave and had to like insulate the microwave to keep it from interfering with the telescope. So that's how sensitive these things are. And having that area of West Virginia where you have, you know, this radio quiet area is just so beneficial to doing radio astronomy. And it is really a world-class facility. It's it's amazing because you don't think of, and, and I know the Green Bank area in Pocahontas County, it's it's even by West Virginia standards, is extremely royal. But it, it's amazing. People don't realize how much high-tech science like that still depends sometimes on something as low-tech as not having any civilization around it for, I've, I don't even <laughs> remember what the zone is. What is it, 20, 30 miles, something like that? Something like that, yeah. I don't think folks realize that there's still a lot of lo-fi, old-school thought to even something as high technology as getting these these radio transmissions from the deep reaches of space. Hey, we got to get out away from a city. That's 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 a common sense thing. It's amazing how those two things still go together. Do you find that a lot as you've as you've progressed in your career of, 
oh, the the big words and the terminology and now the technology that we have, and then you still end up applying these basic principles that everybody can understand when you get down to it. Absolutely. I mean, I've worked in optical astronomy for a long time, and one of the things we worry about a lot there is sky pollution, that even with a city that's tens of miles away, the light that is scattered off the atmosphere can be very bright in a telescope. And so uh, we found that, you know, just basic things like shining lights down, changing the the bulbs that are in the lights can really help with uh, what we're doing out there. And the technology we use is, I mean, it's on the one hand incredibly sophisticated, but there's a very nuts and bolts ac- aspect to it of just the kind of same kind of engineering we've been using forever uh, to get things to work. To give you a, a more concrete example rather than just vague stuff, one of the things that we want when we go to a telescope is to get the sharpest images we can. The atmosphere blurs um, images from the stars, and so we want to account for that and get the sharpest images we can. And that's why we build telescopes on mountains. That's why we build them in deserts, because uh, water vapor interferes with that. But a lot of that is just air molecules moving around, blurring the images from the sky. And so we spent many years trying to, we eventually figured out that it was, most of that interference was coming from the dome itself. Uh, heat flowing out from the dome, uh, air currents within the dome, creating, you know, kind of like when you see a mirage on a hot day on the sidewalk. Yeah, like it was kind of like that yeah. on a, under a, under, at a much lower level, blurring the images in front of the telescope. And they tried all kinds of things, and it turned out the best solution was to actually cut louvers in the dome, or in some cases retract the dome or fold it down completely to just allow the air to flow. Wow. And once you got the airflow going really well, the images got much, much better. Is there something philosophical to the idea that as we try to look deeper, deeper in space, that the molecules right in front of us are the things that's the most getting in the way? Yeah, um, it is kind of a profound thing. I mean, my when I was in graduate school, my advisor, when we would be sitting in the uh, astronomer lodge finishing dinner and it was starting to get dark, he would start making these uh, plink, plink noises of photons hitting the closed dome that we needed to get out there <laughs> and open the telescope. And he said to me, Mike, those photons have traveled billions of light years. Wouldn't it suck if they like hit the if they got all that way and then just <laughs> hit a closed dome one nanosecond before they were going to be detected? Wow. I've heard of dad jokes, but astronomer jokes with that, that's pretty good. I like that. (laughs) Speaking of when people hear astronomy, astronomers are not exactly rock stars, but social media has done what it's done to a lot of things like academia and the media. It has rose up some superstars. You took exception with probably the one astronomer just about everybody knows about, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or astrophysicist, I should say. You took a little exception with him a little while back because talking about science is true. And I, you wrote for us in Ordinary Times, and, and I'll just read it back to you, that the problem with phrasing science as truth is that science is often wrong. I'm quoting you here. Science are not magicians or seers. We get it wrong, and we get it wrong often, sometimes because of personal bias, sometimes because of bad data, but mostly because our understanding of the universe is and probably always will be incomplete. We view the universe through a glass darkly, our understanding limited by human frailty and technological prowess. And that ends your quote. Now you're saying we can't even see past the molecules right in front of us sometimes or because we didn't open the dome correctly. When you hear people setting 
truth and science on the same plateau. Where do you, as both as a scientist and just somebody that I know personally seeks truth and, and is concerned about those philosophical things of our place in the universe, how do you start parsing those things out of, well, we're seeking truth, but this isn't exactly truth, truth? Well, and I think... But to, to speak to DeGrasse Tyson, I think he would absolutely agree with what I said. And, you know, Correct. I had a blog post. He had 280 characters. Right. Um, and I think that is one of the subtleties that, you know, one of the things I like to say is that science is the worst way of figuring out the universe except for every other way that's been tried. Right. We get data. We form a hypothesis. We test it. We see if it's true. We, If it's mostly true but has problems, we try to fix it. If it's false, we throw it away. You know. One of the important things about science that um, one of the important things about science is that any theory has to be what we call falsifiable. We have to be able to disprove it. And as and if you can't disprove a theory, it's not really a scientific theory. It may be a nice thought or interesting hypothesis, but it's not really science in the way we usually think of it. And so, as a result, science doesn't really. You know, one of my Twitter followers actually said it the the uh, really well the other day. Science doesn't get you to truth as much as it tells you what is not true. Right. It's a it's kind of a process of elimination. And it's a little more elegant than that. We get, you know, we do get ideas, we do test them. But what it really is amazing at is showing which ideas are wrong, when we've gotten it wrong. And so, you know, I'm very pro-science. I think, you know, we should use science as our, our guiding light in, in a lot of things, especially with the current pandemic going on. But at the same time, we also have to understand that this is a human endeavor. It is imperfect. We don't always have all the information we need or want. And so these are our best guesses. They are better than any other guesses. They are better than random speculations or you know, people with phone numbers on YouTube or uh, Twitter speculating on things. They are based on evidence, but we always have to have a sort of humility about our conclusions to understand that maybe we don't have it all right. Maybe there is something important we're missing. And we have discovered over and over again uh, that there are things are missing. One of the things I like to, in my first lecture when I teach intro astronomy, the quote I use is, astronomy is a 6,000-year story of the universe telling us we don't know quite as much as we think we do. You know, the, the ancient Greeks thought that the earth was at the center of the universe, the sun and the planets moved around that, and the stars were crystals in a fixed sphere. And they had the data to back it up. You know, their observations supported that, but they were wrong. It took technological innovation and changes in mathematics for us to figure out that they were wrong. And then there was this view that the universe was infinite and eternal and unchanging, and that was wrong. And there was, a, even at the beginning of the 20th century, a feeling that our Milky Way galaxy was the entire universe and that the spiral nebulae we saw were just new forming stars. And that turned out to be wrong. And the people who thought that had the, at each stage had the evidence to back it up. Uh, just within my lifetime, we underwent a profound transformation of our understanding of the universe with the discovery of dark energy about 20 years ago, a component of the universe that we are only now beginning to understand. And so, you know, these incorrect models were useful for understanding the universe, for understanding where we needed to go now, for um, figuring out what the next path in research was. But they were imperfect. And we can't have the 
we have to have the humility to understand that there are things we don't know, there are things yet to discover, and that these are our best guesses. And you talked about the pandemic. I, I think something that's really happened with science over the last year and a half since the pandemic is, it seems to me as a non-scientist, you're the scientist, you can tell me, a lot of normal folks, for lack of a better term, that, let's be honest, not a lot of people follow scientific astronomy or astrophysics or even like health sciences to a large extent. The pandemic made a lot of people all of a sudden had to try to bone up on their nomenclature for how science works. And by how science works, I don't mean scientific method. I mean, like, how does research work? How does government funding of research work? How does health science? How does vaccine? All those are parts of they're different parts of science, the overall umbrella. Now you have the general public paying very close attention to it. And it was really, really messy because people, it was almost like looking through the wrong end of the telescope for an astronomer. Is It's like, what am I looking at? None of this makes sense. What, what have you seen as a scientist that was either encouraging or frustrating as you saw, hey, we've had this 18 months of the general public paying a lot of attention to science. And in a lot, a lot of cases, a lot of the general public didn't like what they saw about science and how science works. I was actually kind of encouraged. I mean, the effort against coronavirus has been the most intense scientific endeavor of my lifetime. You think about there have been more papers published on coronavirus than on, I think, any other topic in science in the last year. Really? That many? Over, overall. Uh, there have been, you know, you think of the effort we went to to characterize the virus, to figure out how it spreads, to figure out how to mitigate it, to figure out what treatments worked to figure out eventually a vaccine, and now to figure out how we get out of all of this. It has been an incredibly intense endeavor. This is Apollo mission, Manhattan project level stuff. And even wow. I, as someone who follows us every day, don't really sometimes appreciate the, what we have been in the midst of. Now, one of the aspects of that, though, is that many of the things that go on in science is people are getting to see how the sausage is made. Many of the things that go on in science, disputes, errors, misinterpretations of data, in one case, unfortunately, outright fraud, these are usually things the public does not see because it's not happening in the public. It happens in journals, it happens at conferences, it happens in emails. But because of the critical situation, we had to get papers out fast. We had to have let the public know what was going on, how our thinking was changing. And, you know, I think on the one hand, that's a bad thing because it may undermine some confidence that sometimes, you know, showing that sometimes we're pretty sure of things that turn out not to be true. But on the other hand, I think it's also good and that the public gets to see that this isn't just edicts handed down from on high. This isn't just Dr. Fauci goes out and issues a decree and everyone agrees. There's debate, there's discussion, there's arguments, there's back and forth. And eventually we reach a consensus. And, but even then, there's still challenges to the consensus. New papers come out, new discussions erupt, and so forth. I've actually been kind of encouraged by the way the public has responded to this. I think they placed an enormous amount of trust in science. You know, we saw the vast majority of people were wearing masks. People did social distancing. Lots of people are taking this vaccine, despite the efforts of many people to try to talk them out of it. We have done, as a society, I think, you know, you talk about on your podcast, turning down the noise. I think the noise of people arguing about, oh, is COVID real? Oh, it's worse than the flu. No, it's no worse than the flu. Oh, the vaccines are killing people and so forth. I think that's a lot of the noise. I think that the vast majority of the public has understood the principles, if not the specifics of things, and placed a great deal of trust in scientists to, I mean, we have 
several hundred million people in this country who have gotten vaccines that didn't exist a year ago. That's an enormous amount of trust from the public. And thankfully, it appears to have been vindicated by the falling caseloads and the, and the very low number of side effects we're getting from this. Take that the other way now. It, it was very apparent that a lot of these scientists and the health officials, a lot of these people are not accustomed to being public facing. They're not what we would call customer service in any other field of endeavor. That's not what these folks do. They're researchers, they're, they're scientists, they're doctors. It was readily apparent that there was some, some issues and there was a communication and a culture gap between them and the general public. Do you, you've talked about how you think the public kind of rose to the occasion and put a lot of faith. Has the scientific community, do you think they've learned some lessons here of, hey, we're in a social media age, we're in an age with the pandemic of we, we have to be able to maybe change how we've done things. And even though we're academic and scientific, we've, we've got to be able to communicate these things to the general public. Do you think they're going to learn the lessons of the last 18 months of even when we're right, we have to present it a certain way to folks that we have to endear trust from? I, I think so. Um, I think that there is a, let me think about this. I think there was a great need early on for some public figure to do sort of like the equivalent of Roosevelt's fireside chats. Right. To basically have like a podcast or a YouTube channel to basically sit down and say, this is what we think we know. This is why we think we know it. This is what we're trying to figure out. And to sort of keep the public more apprised on sort of a bird's eye level of what's going on rather than in the details. Um, I do think one of the things I've seen that's been kind of refreshing is there have been a few people who have gone back and said, all right, here's what I got wrong. Um, Ellie Murray, right. uh, uh, who I follow on Twitter, uh, she had a whole article where she said, these are the things I got wrong. You know, and explain why she got them wrong and what persuaded her that she was wrong. I think we need a lot more of that at this stage of people admitting that we made errors. I mean, they were understandable errors. Like probably one of the biggest ones was understanding how coronavirus spreads. You know, early on, we were telling people, wash your hands, don't touch your face and so forth. But it turns out that kind of contact doesn't spread it very readily. It's mostly an air. And, um, and so I think that's something that needs to be made a little more clear. This was, it was an understandable mistake. This is how the flu spreads. This is how other diseases spread. This is how we thought it spread. We had information saying that. But as that went on, you know, we, uh, we were slow. So I think, and I understand why this is the case. We are, we tend to be reluctant to back down off of things we've said and to admit that we were wrong because we think it undermines public confidence in the science. If we're saying, oh, we got this wrong, but now believe us now. I, maybe I'm a bit Pollyannish on this, but I think that admitting when you were wrong about things, explaining this was based on the best information we have. Here's the information we have now. Uh, I think that's a better way to instill public trust, to admit that you're human, basically. What's the fear there? Is it besides just human ego? Because, of course, you know, scientists are like everybody else. They want to be the best and they want to be right, especially in a time period like this where all of a sudden, you know, if you got the right credentials, you're going to wind up on television in front of a camera somewhere. But besides the ego part, though, what what is it that is it peer pressure? Is it? You know, the there's only so much research money and grant money, and you don't want to stain when you go to compete for things like that. What what is it that drives that in the scientific community that might be different than the general population of, oh, I want to get this right. I've got to be right. I can't make a mistake, and if I make a mistake, I better not admit it or or try to deflect the blame on it. 
I don't think it's unique to the scientific community. In fact, I think I would say the scientific community is a little more willing to admit mistakes. I think it's the media environment we have now and sort of the way that, you know, sort of grifters and people who are arguing in bad faith respond to admissions that we got something wrong, that, you know, the guidance changed on wearing masks. And that has been used for the last year by various uh, people to say they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. Whereas I think the general public does understand that this is a crazy situation and we're trying to figure out as we go. But I think that's, you know, again, you you talk about the noise. I think that's a large part of it, that that fear that you're going to be on someone's radio show having an old quote thrown at you and... You know, so you don't want to back down. So I think it's less specific to science and more specific to the media environment we have now, which praises certainty and being absolutely confident in your answer over caution and uh, and other things. I, if I can diverge a little bit, um, sure. There was a book I, I wrote about a couple of years ago um, from Radley Balco about forensic science presented in the courtroom. Yeah. And one of the things that he talked about was that juries have a tendency to decide what forensic scientists they believe less on what is presented to them and what information than then how confident and assured the scientist seems. That if he's really confident that he's right about this, they're likely to believe him. And if he's really, well, it could be this, it could be the other thing, uh, then they don't believe him. I think the same is true in the media environment. There is a tendency to focus on scientists who talk with more certainty and less with uh, awareness of our limitations. There is a tendency to try to get gotchas on people for things they said that may turn out not to be true. And that's, it's a little more problematic for science, but it's problematic for everything. You know, we have lots of very important public policy and debates that would be improved if people could admit that we were wrong about that. There's nothing wrong with admitting that scientists are people too, is what you're getting at. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that, uh, but I think it's less specific to science and more specific to the sort of media and culture that we've built up, which prizes certainty and absolute statements over qualified statements that scientists in general feel more comfortable making. You know, if, if someone comes up and says, you know, masks will stop coronavirus, people might listen to that, or at least they'll get attention on, on the news stations. If someone says, Based on the information we have at this time, we believe that masks will mitigate but not prevent the spread of coronavirus. That's, you know, someone's fallen asleep halfway through. You, uh, you've been doing the yeoman's work on explaining a lot of the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus stuff to us at Ordinary Times, ordinary-times.com. You can find your other writing there as well. But um, one of the things you've been on since day one, and I appreciate it, and it's and it's coming up again now with what they're calling the Delta variant, which sounds super important and scary, uh, with the virus mutations. You you had an interesting way of trying to explain it to people like me who have no idea how viruses work. You talked about viruses are kind of like evolution on steroids, um, and you explained virus mutations like a game of telephone. But just to briefly, and so people, so when they hear something like, oh, the Delta variant, what is it about virus mutations that beyond the headlines people are pushing out so that folks that understand is like, we've got vaccines, it's not as scary as it sounds, it's something that we do need to pay attention to, though. But explain that again for folks, because you've been talking about this for months and months and months. I rely on your input on it, 
a lot of other people do. So, so, but I thought that analogy worked pretty well for me to understand it as somebody that doesn't know much about science. Yeah, well, I'm an astrophysicist explaining virology, but fortunately, my wife's a biochemist, so she checks me on this. <laughs> basically, what a virus is is basically a a container for a genetic code. And that genetic code gets into your cells, takes them over, makes more virus, and then the cell literally explodes, spreading more virus. That genetic code for the virus is very short and very specific. And every time it is copied, there's a chance that there will be a transcription error. It is like a game of telephone that you know, you've played that game of telephone where you say, you know, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. And by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's ten purple monkey dishwasher <laughs> with... What viruses don't mutate. Virus, it's from The Simpsons. Yeah, I know. But, um, great, good stuff. Um, viruses don't mutate that dramatically, but every time they copy themselves, there is that possibility of a transcription error. Most of the time, that doesn't matter. They do it all the time. It's actually kind of useful because it lets us track transmissions that we can look at various little families of viruses and see how they're being spread. But occasionally, it will mutate to something that fundamentally changes the operation of the virus. It might make it more deadly. It might make it less deadly. It might make it spread easier or it might make it spread less easy. And these are the variants that we worry about. The Delta variant and before that the Alpha variant, these are mutations to the spike protein. This is the little uh, spike that the virus uses to attach to your cells, open them up and throw its own genetic code in there so it can start making virus. And the uh, vaccines we have attack, cheat your body to recognize the spike protein so that it doesn't accept it and recognizes that that's dangerous. These caused mutations to that so that one, they became more effective and they infected the body more. And the concern was that it mutated the spike protein enough, the vaccines wouldn't work. The information we have now is that this is not fooling the vaccines. Uh, the analogy I used on um, Ordinary Times was that this vaccine is, the virus is trying to sneak into your body wearing a false mustache and faking a British accent, and your body's like, I know who you are. So um, that's, that's the relief so far. We, so far, the uh, variations we have had are susceptible to the vaccine, that your body is smart enough to recognize this slightly different version of the virus, ramp up its immune system, and kill it. We do worry at some point down the line we will get something that the vaccines won't recognize or more likely will be less effective against. And then we'll have to probably tweak the vaccines and, and uh, have booster shots or something like that. But we haven't gotten to that point yet. Coronaviruses don't mutate as much as, say, the flu virus. We have to get a different flu virus every year, flu vaccine every year because the, um, the flu virus mutates so dramatically. So... Uh, we, are, we have been lucky so far. And one of the biggest arguments for getting people vaccinated is that every time you think about it, playing that game of telephone, if you're playing a game of telephone with three people, the, the message is not going to get changed too much. If you're playing a game of telephone with a million people, the message will be incomprehensible at the end. Every time the virus is transmitted, every time it replicates, there's a chance for that code to change. The fewer people who are infected, the fewer times the virus copies itself, the less chance it has to change to something much more deadly. And so that's why vaccination is so important because, I mean, apart from protecting people from getting sick and dying, it also 
mitigates this risk that the vaccine will mutate into something that's truly dangerous. And just since you brought it up, and it's one of the favorite uh, conspiracy theories on social media, a spiked protein is not a conspiracy theory in and of itself. Spiked protein is good science when it comes to virology, correct? Yeah. The spike protein is... So you can imagine a virus having the way it would look in the coronavirus. It's like a big sphere with all these little things sticking out of it. Those little things sticking out are the spike protein. They attach to your body. We used to vaccinate people by infecting them with either a dead virus or a uh, very weakened virus. Um, This came from smallpox. We noticed that some, you you know, hundreds of years ago, people noticed some versions of smallpox were less deadly. So they would deliberately infect themselves with a less deadly version of smallpox because that protected them from the more deadly version. And you think about the math then, even with the less deadly version, there was a one to 2% chance you'd die. Yeah, great plan. But there was, yeah, but against the 30% chance with the deadly variants, that was uh, the calculation. But most viruses, uh, vaccines use a dead or attenuated virus. Uh, But what we figured out is that you don't actually need the entire virus. Your body keys on certain parts of the virus. So the HPV vaccine, for example, does not use a full virus, I I believe. Um, Tetanus vaccine doesn't actually attenuate to the bacteria. It it treats, it recognizes the uh, toxin produced by the bacteria. And so we've figured out that we can just expose your body to a part of the virus, and that will be enough for it to recognize it and destroy it, as long as it's an essential part of the virus. And this spike protein is an essential part of the virus. So there are coronavirus vaccines out there that use a attenuated or dead virus, but the ones we are using use that spike protein, which it absolutely has to have to attach to your cells, uh, to re- teach your body to recognize it and kill it. And that lowers the risk uh, to us. And the preliminary results are that it works extremely well. I mean, this 95% effectiveness for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is really amazing. That's not something I imagined a year ago we would have. Let's bring this back to where we kind of started. We, we, we've we heard that phrase, believe the science, or and then people get nuts with it and be like, believe all science. Um, believing the science, though, uh, you wrote about it in, in Ordinary Times, and you said, and I'll quote you again, lately it's been fashionable for people to say believe the science, but science is not a belief. It's a series of facts and our interpretation of the facts, and when it's right, it's right no matter how much you might want to disbelieve it. And when it's wrong, it's wrong, no matter how much you want to believe it. We collect data, we formulate hypotheses, we test them, we improve them, but it's never perfect. As, as you kind of look back on the last 15 months, not just as a scientist, your wife's involved in it, so you've seen that end of it. But you've been writing about this and interacting, and you've seen the comments and the conspiracy theories and all this mess. Are you encouraged? Do you see not just maybe coronavirus, but just science in general? Do you, do you think the information age we're in are people getting a better understanding that it's never perfect, but there's this process? And maybe if I under, learn the process a little bit better, I can see where science is going. Because I think in the next few months and years, they're gonna, there's going to be that moment where people get hindsight and go, holy cow, we developed a vaccine in like, what was it, like eight and a half months or something? Start to fa- less and, than a year, yeah. Yeah, so at some point, I think they'll have that hindsight moment of, Wow, we really accomplished something amazing. Are you encouraged that maybe the the no, the flash and the sizzle of the science stake will meet up to the substance of it here in the near future, and folks will start putting them together and go, 
oh, I understand the process a little bit better now because they have this transparency through things like social media. Do you you see that coming down the road of folks like, I think science is in for maybe not a renaissance, but a better place of, hey, a lot of this stuff that was in closed buildings on campuses is is out in the open now. Maybe people will get a better appreciation for it going down the road. I'm known to be optimistic about these things. And so I, I hope once... You know, the noise, like the noises died down, especially as the virus recedes from here. I mean, it's still raging around the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. In the United States, it's on the run. Um, I think people will look back and see, you know, that the the science did a, a pretty good job. There were mistakes we made. And I think there will be many years where we'll go back through mistakes. I think one of the things that would benefit most, that will benefit most is I think among young people, who take science classes, I think you're going to have, I hope, you'll have a lot of professors talking about the coronavirus as an example of how science works. Uh, when I taught astronomy in the fall, I told my students, you're in the middle of one of the biggest scientific stories of my lifetime, I hope of yours. Um, and you're seeing the back and forth. You're seeing how we make mistakes. We're seeing how we correct those mistakes. You're seeing how we get to a consensus. You're seeing what you know, we can do when we basically decide money is no object, which is not something we want to do very often. But, um, but yeah, I'm sort of optimistic. And I think, I think it will be interesting over the next few years to see, especially with young people, how this affects their career choices. You know, when we landed people on the moon, that encouraged and inspired a lot of people to go into science, even if they didn't necessarily go into being astronauts and so forth. A lot of people found inspiration in that to go, young people found interest to go into science. Other people found interest to just be part of science, you know, amateur astronomers to look at the skies, that sort of thing. I'm hoping that seeing, when we take a step back and see what has been done over the last 18 months, going from, you know, a few people getting sick in China and not knowing what was going on to having a vaccine that's returning us to normal life, I think hope and I think it will inspire a lot of people, a lot of young people to go into science, not necessarily into virology, but into other sciences to say, hey, I want to be a part of that. This was, you know, something amazing that was done. And I want to be part of something that's amazing. I I think so, too. I think you'll see because people forget for everyone astronaut, you had what, probably five, six thousand engineers and whatever at NASA during the space race, something, you know, whatever that ratio yep. is. I think so. And I, I think anytime you have something that's really hard to understand, like uh, certain aspects of science can be, especially something like virology, a, a, a very specific part of medical science, which is comp- one of our hardest sciences anyway. I think more exposure to it is going to be a good thing in the long run, both for the accountability of the people doing it, but on people wanting to be invested in it and maybe choose that as a career path or at least have a better understanding of it. I agree with you. Yeah. And even not necessarily to medicine, like one of the things, I mean, you had uh, Dr. Katie Gordon on a couple of weeks ago and was talking about how people are dealing with this mental health wise. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe that'll be inspire people to, you know, seeing, you know, the, the, tr- the trauma and stress that this is causing us will cause more people to want to go into mental health. Um, you know, you never know how, people are going to get inspired. I mean, I'm an astronomer, but one of the things that inspired me to do astronomy was the space program. You know, I was never going to be an astronaut, but it inspired an interest in science that through a very winding path ended up with me in astronomy. So I'm hoping if we uh, 
continue to emphasize just how amazing this responsive science has been. If, you know, again, making missteps, having flaws, making errors, making mistakes, but just how we've gotten to this amazing place where we have this vaccine that's returning us to normal life. I think the more people think about it, the more they'll think, I'd like to be a part of that, at least in some small respect. Uh, I'd certainly hope so, too. Tell me real quick, my friend, where folks can find your stuff, ordinary-times.com. You also have a novel out. Just tell people where they can find some of your stuff in your social media. Um, almost everything goes through Ordinary Times. I'm on uh, Twitter at Hal underscore RTFLC. That's from Right Thinking from the Left Coast, which was the blog, a dead blog I wrote for before I went to Ordinary Times. I have my novel link there. It's called The Water Lily Pond. It's uh, set in the near future and about biotechnology, actually. I publish stuff on science and occasional short stories or stuff about movies. And one of the things that I love about Ordinary Times is, you know, I don't have to have this little niche where I'm confined to that if I come to you and say, hey, I wrote this two-part epic thing about Miyazaki movies. You're like, great, let's run it. And for someone whose mind is sort of all over the place, that's a very, uh, it's, it's a very big temptation. <laughs> but, sure. um, but everything, you know, if you go to Ordinary Times and click on my name, you'll find links to everything that I do, um, including my own website where I occasionally publish short stories. And he's in the middle of a uh, three-part short story right now that you can find as well, part of the OT Contributor Network. Uh, Michael Siegel, uh, I always value your opinion on lots of things, so thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts and expertise with everybody on Hertel. I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Love being here. Thank you, sir. Carl Sagan said, Science is a self-correcting process. To be accepted, new ideas must survive the most rigorous standards of evidence and scrutiny. So, of course, it's good for us to always question the science, but question it honestly. We don't want to just besmirch people, but it's good for us to question them. Scientists come from a very different world than a lot of us do, especially from the academic side or the research side of science. So they have something they can learn from us, the common folks, as well. And we have a lot we can learn from them. If we can find a little bit better ways of communicating those things, it would be for the benefit of all of us. But we're also all grown folk adults here. We understand that things like culture and politics color things like science and color how we look at things. So maybe it's on all of us to do a little bit better of turning down our filters when it comes to dealing with science. Because we need science and scientists. We didn't understand hardly anything about the COVID pandemic. We didn't understand a lot of those things. And the scientists didn't understand them either. But they figured it out faster than we did, and they needed to be able to give us information and instill trust in us, the general public. So when we hear something about science as a correcting process, maybe the thing we need to understand the most about that is the process part. It's not instantaneous. It's not something where you're going to figure out the truth in the first 10 minutes. And we need to be able to maintain our bearings and understand that as the information changes, our opinions should change with it. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you know something now that you didn't know before and adjusting a little bit. And there wouldn't be anything wrong with the scientists having enough humility to tell us up front that these things are going to be a process. We don't lose social media points for getting it right last. But you will lose a whole lot of credibility if you get it wrong first. Truth and science don't always go together really well, but we need both, even though we get to both different ways sometimes. One more quote about science before we go. Quote, it is a profound and necessary truth that the deep things in science are not found because they are useful. 
they are found because it was possible to find them, which is a good enough quote in and of itself. And then you realize it was said by J. Robert Oppenheimer, and the thing that he's most known for gives it a lot more weight. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Herd Tell. Please find us on whatever platform you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, whatever platform you're on. Make sure to leave a rating and a comment. Those are really important to let people know that our little programs we're checking out. We have some exciting news coming out in the next few weeks that are going to dictate what we do with this program for the next six months or so. Really anxious to share it with you. As soon as it's ready, we'll let you know. In the meantime, we're going to keep bringing you knowledgeable guests that turn down the noise on the news cycle and bring you good information with grown folk talk discussing things without all the yelling and caterwauling. It's what we're proud to do. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing it. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Herd Tell. Make sure you check out all the other episodes and do tell a friend about it. Whether you're across the street or around the world, y'all take care of yourselves and each other. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.